Part eighteen of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Two Critics of Poetry History of English Poetry by W. J. Courthope. Volume six, London, Macmillan and Company, ten shillings net. The Romantic Movement in English Poetry by Arthur Simons, London, Constable and Company, seven shillings and sixpence, net. During the last year, two histories of the Byronic period of English poetry have been laid before a public which prefers the criticism of poetry to poetry itself. One of these is by Mr. Courthope, a professor, the other by Mr. Simons, a poet. Both books are notable in their way, but their ways are different. For the professor, poetry is one side of the history of England, every poet the mouthpiece of his age. He views all romantic literature as a phase of the party struggle between Whig and Tory, a struggle enlivened by a third element, that passionate adoration of liberty, that unworldly determination to wreck the social order, and to build the new Jerusalem in the pleasant fields of England. That so wild a temper as this last is repellent to Mr. Courthope, his attitude clearly shows, though he strives hard to conceal his repulsion. Yet, however foolish politically, this idea directly inspired all the great poetry of the age, save that of Crabbe and Keats. Mr. Courthope's method of criticism is imperial, almost brutal. He estimates poets by their influence rather than by their merit. This is excusable, but to estimate their merit by their influence, to allow direct literary criticism to be coloured by the contemporary importance or posthumous popularity of the poet, is not excusable. But Mr. Courthope does this. Fascinated by the great personality and power of Byron, he bestows exaggerated praise on those lyrical dramas whose bombast, tumidity, and conceit Meredith's curt sonnet has immortally damned. Yet even Mr. Courthope can find little to say in their defence, save that they are good, sound English, and tolerable blank verse. Again, we may forgive our author for reviving some names, that of Mason, for instance, for their political rather than their poetical importance. But can we forgive him for writing pages on Hogg without mentioning Kilmeny or the fairies? Can we forgive him for entirely admitting Darley, Jane, and Anne Taylor, and a score of other interesting names in a book which styles itself A History of English Poetry, in a volume full of Southey, Erasmus Darwin, and the Della Cruscans? or for perpetuating that old and vicious sophistry that we cannot estimate the value of poetry till the writers thereof are soundly dead, and there is some trend of a muddy popular opinion for a critic to seize hold of, and for being frightened, in accordance with this fear, of giving us any estimate of those rising young poets of today, Tennyson, Browning, and Rossetti. But, after all, Professor Courthope is an enthusiast. When he finds any verse which he considers patriotic and healthy, such as Campbell's tinsel Battle of the Baltic, a rather mean poem 
for a rather mean occasion, or Scott's boyish, charming, quite unimportant ballads, he indulges in extravagant applause. When he is writing of Blake and Keats, we feel that for him they are simply a pair of conceited asses with a spark of genius. We know that had Mr. Courthope been on the Edinburgh at the time, he would have had no good to say of such miserable poetasters. Blake. This seems to be the half-conscious trend of professorial thought. Blake had no interest or influence in politics or society. He was a mystic. Mysticism is nonsense, and Blake a conceited ass. Keats, again, was no gentleman. His vulgarity occasionally appears in his verse. This, of course, is true, and Mr. Courthope fairly gloats over it. He was sensual, not in Byron's flashy, patrician way, but with all the real viciousness of the lower middle classes. His heroes are swooning fellows, not healthy Britons. A passage in Lamia is too disgusting for quotation. Keats had no interest in politics. Keats was a conceited ass. Most modern poets have followed Keats' devotion to his art and appealed to a circle of cultured admirers. They, too, are conceited asses. Mr. Arthur Simons, on the other hand, prefers poetry to politics. And his book, though neither great criticism nor great literature, is superior to that of Mr. Courthope both in matter and in manner. Mr. Simons is himself something of a poet. It is too often forgotten that, though artists may be very bad critics, they are the only people really fit to criticise. It must be admitted, however, that the appreciation of an art by a critic who practises himself is apt to be intense, but narrow. So with Mr. Simons. For instance, he starts by defining poetry as everything written in metre. This is the common-sense definition. It is the only definition. It is amazing that no one seems to have thought of it before. But while Mr. Simons has a fine talent for understanding and judging romantics and realists, he takes the bigoted view of Keats with regard to the Augustan age of English verse. By the way, Mr. Courthope thinks Keats an exceptionally conceited ass for abusing so distinguished a man as Boileau. He should read Landor on the absurdities of that dismal Frenchman. In consequence, Mr. Simons has no good to say of Pope. If Pope is poetry, he declares, then neither Elizabethan nor Romantic verse is poetry at all. He thus falls into the old error of using poetry in the sense of good, romantic, or inspired verse, and into the more serious error of failing to see that Pope is great literature in verse, and therefore a great poet, according to his own definition. Mr. Simons does not perhaps see that the devotion to Pope, which so many profess nowadays, is essentially romantic. If he could feel any sympathy for the elegance and wit of the age of which Pope was so striking a representative, he might begin to feel the force and humanity of his verse. The emotions that poetry should inspire need not surely be all elevated or elemental. Are lyrical and dramatic forms of verse the only true or noble forms? Is Browning, is Juvenal no poet? But, after all, Mr. Simons is the best critic we have had of romantic, or even of realistic, verse. 
he has lost the irritating precocity and paterism of style which marred his former work, and his criticisms are usually neat, witty, profound, and sensible. He, at times, is apt to begin to flutter, there is no better word, about the beauty, majesty, golden sweetness, and so forth, of his poets, in the manner of John Addington Simons. But he only does this when led away by enthusiasm for the great names of Blake and Shelley. His verdicts on the minor poets are remarkably sound and convincing. He does not perhaps do justice to George Darley, but his estimates of Lee Hunt and the Taylors, his amusing but just condemnations of Southey, Moore and Scott, are admirable. He is the first modern critic to observe the real metrical force of some of Mrs. Heman's forgotten rhymes, and he makes us clamour for a cheap and good edition of the Ettrick Shepherd. In the writing of Byron, however, our author, like Mr. Courthope, tends to undue admiration. Byron is a poet who is given to surprising the reader by genuine excellence even in the midst of his absurdest romantic tales and it has become the fashion to pronounce Don Juan to be an excellent, and his most excellent, work. We suspect these fashionables of not having read Don Juan through. It is indeed a brilliant and amusing work, cunningly versified, yet rather too full of contemporary and unimportant allusions, rather too long and prolix to hold the attention of the reader. But when we compare it with other works, with which in form or tone it challenges comparison, we may well ask what it contains which rivals Ariosto and the voyage of Astolfo to the moon, and we may remark how both its wit, sense, and imagination fail when tested by such a poem as Browning's Blaurum. Byron, as Mr. Sainsbury has truly said, is second-rate for all his merits, and as far below Hogg as a romantic poet as he was above him in worldly state and influence. But it is hard to escape from the fascination of his character, and as a satirist he will surely live. But, after all, Mr. Simons has made a valiant attempt to judge every poet by the merit of his poetry, and by that alone. He does not write more of their biographies than is inevitable or illuminating. His supreme concern is with their works. With diligent scholarship, and with an observant, unprejudiced mind, he has read through almost every scrap of rhyme written in the forty years of which his book treats. I suppose that in the literature schools of one of our great, or less great, universities, he would obtain, if a candidate, quite a respectable second class. Let us, however, in fairness consider what, if anything, can be urged in favour of other styles of criticism, in favour of treating poets as politicians, like Courthope, or as characters, like Matthew Arnold. We may say first that, to an average mind, Mr. Courthope's book, and books of its class, are liable to be far more interesting than books like that of Mr. Simon's, which have a purely aesthetic aim. Had Mr. Courthope called his book a history of political influence in English poetry, had he been content to trace that influence without making unsuitable remarks on the aesthetic value of poetical productions, his book would be one that could well be praised for its research, its clearness, and its interest. Instead, he has supported that ancient and false critic, 
popular opinion, which is never a real national verdict, and, if it was, would not be of supreme importance, and is usually nothing but a confused and journalistic distortion of the opinion of a few eminent men of the day. Still worse, under that valiant guise, so popular in these days, so surely a sign of decadence, of being a man who, though a scholar, loves virility, blatant patriotism, and common sense, he has wronged and insulted memories of the great. The care, discernment, and mental balance of Arthur Symons is in pleasing contrast to this pompous attitudinizing, and is far more worthy of the high traditions of English literature and of Englishmen. Yet we often agree with Mr. Courthope when he is not employed in criticism and especially when he deplores the absence of political interest in modern poetry. He is rather apt to blame the poets. He should blame history. The dearth of proud and eagle-winged forces in this modern age is a calamity for art. Whether these century-old poets preached an idea, as Shelley, Byron, and Wordsworth, ran counter to it, as Crabb, or neglected it, as Keats, they had the inestimable advantage of living in a society rent by the enthusiasms and hatreds of the French Revolution. In those good days Shelley was not an ineffectual angel whose pretty lyrics might be read by simpering girls, but a most effectual devil, like a socialist of today, attacking the very foundations of society. Only during the last year has there arisen in England a political crisis worthy of the pen and in this revived bitterness of strife lies at least some hope for the future of English poetry. End of Part 18 Recording by Algie Pug